Hi, Pastor Rob here from Blessed Hope Chapel and RobCartlidgeMinistries.com. What you hold is true. Is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. tackle a pretty big question today and you've probably heard it said many times you know over the years you know what is the meaning to life now as Christians we can think pretty quickly we know the meaning to life but I want to firstly just survey what the world says is the meaning to life or what they believe the meaning of life is and then as we go through that we're going to see more and more clearly just what the Bible has to say about it and and we're going to be able to ascertain where, where the most meaning comes from, you know, which, which view, which ideal in the world today offers us the best answer to that question. And I, I've always been fascinated by this question, even from a young child. As long as man has lived on this planet, they have grappled or we've grappled with eternal questions like, why are we here? What is our purpose? Science can't answer those questions. Why are we here? Science can tell you all the building blocks of the universe, and, but they can't tell you what is the ultimate reason why we're here. What is our purpose? And in a phrase, they will ask, what is the meaning to life? Can science answer that question? It will never, ever answer that question. It's not designed to answer that question. The question is not only reasonable, because if you think about it, a little child will, will sort of ponder these sort of questions, it's not only a reasonable question, but it's a significant question. It's also a question that if we have it answered adequately, should help us to navigate life so much better. It should help us to say, okay, I know what the meaning to life is, and now I'm going to walk according to that. And it's going to help direct the course of our life and our priorities, our decision-making, everything else is going to be, you know, we're going to have a, a clear vision and be able to ascertain very clearly which way we should be going in life. So I think it's, it's, these are very important questions to ponder. So since the 60s until today, our neo-pagan culture will tell you that life is all about sex, drugs and rock and roll. Who's heard that? Right? You haven't really lived in the last 40 years if you haven't heard that said you know, numerous times. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. That's what life's all about. The alcoholic will tell you that life is all about drinking you know, getting drunk. The drug addict will tell you that life is about the next score. Getting high is what life's all about. You know, shutting off from reality, going somewhere else, basically. The nightclubbers, people that, you know, go out all the time, will tell you that it's about the next big party or living life fast. And even now they've come up with this new thing, this new slogan, dying young. You know, they sing about it, you know, die young. You know, it's crazy. What is that? Is that that's, there's not meaning in that. The car enthusiast will tell you that life's all about their cars, and the shopaholic will tell you life is all about shopping. There's many, you know, many people that it's all about consume, buying things, isn't it? Going out. You know, women will tell you all the time how important it is to go shopping, or else they'll get depressed. The fisherman will tell you life's all about fishing, 
You know, every second Greek will tell you life's all about fishing. And the sports fan or the soccer fan will tell you life's all about sport or soccer. And we know in some parts of Europe, you know, soccer is worshipped and it's religious to the point that they'll kill their fan, uh, the opposition, the fans of the opposition, in defending their, you know, their team. It's crazy. That's how lost people really are today. The wealth creationists will tell you that life is all about amassing real estate and share portfolios. So it's all about making loads and loads of money, preparing for retirement, all that sort of thing. But they don't prepare for the ultimate retirement, which comes after death. The career-minded will tell you life's all about the next promotion. There's a lot of people, very driven people, that it's all about, you know, getting to the next level and increasing the amount of income they get coming in and all that. And that's their life. They're obsessed with that. That's what it's all about. So when those sort of people retire, it's like... Who am I now? I've got nothing. How many, people, how many times have you heard of people who work so hard all their life and within six months of retirement, they're dead? The materialist will tell you that our reality consists entirely of physical matter and therefore our meaning extends only with the, within the realms of physical life. So meaning is only this. After this, it's nothing. That's hopeless, man. You know, you tell that to a little child dying of cancer. Don't worry, this is, this is all there is and what you're suffering is about the best it's ever going to be. You know, say, die. You know, that's hopeless. That is a hopeless state of affairs to think that life amounts to this. The naturalist will tell you much the same as the materialist, that life is all about nature and absolutely stems no further. So once you die, you're dead pretty much like the atheist. The actual atheism and naturalism, sort of, they go hand in hand. Most atheists will, their religious belief will be a naturalist belief. The humanist will tell you that life is all about the celebration of the human race. So it's all about us. It's not about a God who created us. It's all about us, and we've got to celebrate us now. And everything that happens in life is all about, you know, furthering ourselves. But the dilemma in answering this question gets even more hopeless as men and women, women grapple to adequately answer it. And I just want to put some out here. What is the meaning of life? And the meaning is to be happy and useful. That's the Dalai Lama. That's the best he can give you. Happy and useful. And much the same, John Lennon said this. He said, when I was five years old, my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I wrote down, happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment, and I told them they didn't understand life. The only problem with happiness being the reason or the meaning of life is what happens when you lose your happiness. You have no meaning left then. Does that make sense? If it's all about happiness and you don't have happiness, you don't have meaning any longer, according to John Lennon. Because that's the obvious inference of that. So that, that is pathetic. And the Dalai Lama and all his great wisdom, happiness <laughs> and being useful, what happens if you're not useful? <laughs> if you can't be useful and if you can't be happy? There's a lot of people that have got um, genuine reasons why they're not happy. <laughs> you know, we talked about Rocco today. He lost his love of his life, you know. 
I don't, he couldn't say that he's happy anymore. <laughs> that means, according to these guys, he's got no meaning anymore. But is that the truth? I don't think it is. There's a little picture to look at. This is the meaning of life according to some people. Living in a fishbowl, of course. <laughs> and look, you know, nice sports car, cruises, beautiful homes, all the drinks and, you know, briefcase there meaning a successful businessman. You know, jet, jet setting off on some, you know, trip around the world. All nice things, but is it the truth? Is that the meaning? What about a poor kid in India? He doesn't have any meaning anymore because he can't live like that. You know, or a kid in Africa, he can't live like that. He's living in a tin shed. You know, he's got a plastic bowl and he's hunting for food all day long, trying to, please, please give me some food. That's, that's not meaning, is it? What about this one? I like it when they, when these men around the world, James Frey, tries to grapple with this. What is the meaning of life? Whatever you want it to be. <laughs> okay, so now it's got to the point, well, none of those are suitable. So whatever you want it to be, that's the meaning. Okay. What about this one? The meaning of life is to give life a meaning. And he, he bothered standing in the street with a sign. The meaning to life is to give life a meaning. Okay. That's interesting. What about this one? This is much the same. Don't ask what the meaning of life is. So they're saying, don't ask it because we can't answer it. That's really the reason he's saying don't ask it. But you define it. You define it. That's, that's tough. I, I think there's got to be more to it than that. What about this one? I love this one. The, the businessman is talking to this guru here. I want to know the meaning of life. And he said, have you tried Googling it? Because he's got no idea. Google must know. And this one's even better. You know these, you've probably seen these emails that come around and they've got these boxes and a little quote, the meaning of life. You're welcome. You know, it's an empty box. No answer. They have no answer. You know, if you don't look to Jesus, you have no answer to the meaning of life. And then it gets more hopeless than that. Trying to find the meaning of life is harder than trying to capture lightning in a bottle and probably best left to a professional. Who are the professionals? Well, certainly not someone from a worldly atheistic perspective. They won't give you an answer. They'll give you, and you're going to hear some of the answers from atheists. Let's have a listen to this guy, Henry Miller. He's the author of Tropic of Cancer and also Tropic of Capricorn, I think was another book he read. He said, life has to be given a meaning because of the obvious fact that it has no meaning. So he's given up. You have to give it meaning because I don't have a meaning for it. He doesn't know the meaning of it. And this guy, Joseph Campbell, he's a professor of mythology, and he said this, life has no meaning. Of course, an atheist has to say that because he also teaches comparative religion. He, he mocks Christianity. Each of us have meaning, and we bring it to life. Each of us have meaning, but he says life has no meaning. But aren't we living? He's just contradicted himself in two sentences. Life has no meaning. Each of us has meaning, but we're living. We're life. And we bring it to life. It is a waste to be asking the question when you are the answer. So now we are the answer. 
But is that the answer? You're the answer. That doesn't make sense. How can we be the answer to a question that we still... So you go, okay, I'm the answer. But that's not really the answer I'm looking for because I don't know the meaning of life. His philosophy is often summarised and, of course, follow your bliss, which is like an Alistair Crowley, do what thou wilt. You know, just whatever feels good, do it. Cartoonist Charles Schultz, and he's the cartoonist for Peanuts and Snoopy and Charlie Brown, he said... I don't know the meaning of life. At least he was honest. I don't know why we are here. I think life is full of anxieties and fears and tears. It has a lot of grief in it. And it can be very grim. And I do not want to be one of those who tries to tell somebody else what life is all about. Well, of course he can't because he says, I don't know it. So don't try to tell me what it means if you don't know what it means. To me, it's a complete mystery. Well, at least a bit of honesty came out of the guy. I thought that was good. But here we go. Who, who knows of Richard Dawkins? Richard Dawkins, one of the uh, most famous atheists today, uh, and he said this. Richard Dawkins, the atheist, goes even further and says, We are machines built by DNA whose purpose is to make more copies of the same DNA This is exactly what we are for. We are machines for propagating DNA. And the propagation of DNA is a self-sustaining process. It is every living creature's sole reason for living. So all we really are, guys, you know, forget love, emotions, and, and, you know, striving to develop our talents and all that. It's got nothing to do with that. We're just DNA and we're propagating machines. We're here just to really procreate and die. Procreate and die. This is hopeless. This is the atheist, the leading atheist today. He stripped away all meaning down to a bare-boned, nothing meaning. They were just propagating machines. We are survival machines, robot vehicles, blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. This is, tr- this is a truth. This is a truth which still fills me with astonishment. What? He's astonished by that? How can you be astonished by that? That the purpose of all life is to pass on their DNA means that all living things are descended from a long line of successful ancestors which can best be understood as fulfilling a purpose of propagating DNA. There is no purpose other than that. Well, why don't we all just die then? If that's all it's all about, give up. Forget life. Because it's not worth living. And, and, and you know what? If, if someone's thinking about committing suicide and they're a Dawkins fan and they read that and that they go, well, that's the extent of it. Why live? Why live? And then I found this quite funny. Sort of goes with that. Life is a sexually transmitted disease which always ends in death and there is currently no known cure. So that sums it up. <laughs> I like that. Read that a bit. It is, makes sense. But we do know the cure, don't we, eh? We know the cure and his name is Jesus.
His name is Jesus. He came and he died for the sins of men. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. You know, we are a wretched lot without him. You know, if he doesn't get in our heart and transform us and turn us into who we're meant to be, we are as lost as anyone else who's telling us all these things about the meaning of life. Without Jesus, we are nothing. Now, if, if life could get any more hopeless than Richard Dawkins' account of the meaning of life, then I think it does here. Perhaps the most depressing and deeply lost quote of all comes from the late atheist writer Christopher Hitchens. Who knows of Christopher Hitchens? Very popular atheist, uh, well-spoken man, quite, quite a um, you know, likeable character. He's one of those atheists that you like. I know plenty of atheists I like. But, um, but he was one that very got a bit of a charisma and he, he, he's comical. But he's, he's missed the mark. He missed the mark. And he died too, unfortunately. Uh, he never got to receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour. But he said this, the clear awareness of having been born into a losing struggle, so he calls life a losing struggle, need not lead one into despair. I do not especially like the idea that one day I shall be tapped on the shoulder and informed, not that the party is over, meaning not that life is over, but that it most assuredly is going on, only henceforth in my absence. So he's saying that life is still going to go even though he's not there. It's going to keep on going. Much more horrible, though, would be the announcement that the party was continuing forever and that I was forbidden to leave. I want you to listen to these words. This is how he twists things around. What he's trying to say is, I'll read the rest of the quote, whether it was a hellishly bad party that he couldn't leave or a party that was perfectly heavenly, meaning in heaven, in every respect, the moment that it became eternal and compulsory, guys, is heaven compulsory? And I'll tell you now, there will not be one soul in eternity who's entered into heaven who will ever say, Lord, I'm sick of this. I want out. Could you imagine someone wanting out of heaven? Lord, I don't want to be here. Send me to hell, please. <laughs> no. That's not going to be the case. But he says, the moment that it became eternal and compulsory would be the precise moment that it began to pall, meaning... You know, he wouldn't want to be there any longer. He'd want out. You see, that's despair, hopelessness, isn't it? That is like trying to twist atheists around. Hey, guys, even if you, you know, heaven's not going to be that great because if once it's compulsory and you have to be there, you can't get out, you're going to hate it. Man, who, put your hand up if you long for heaven. Do you long for heaven? I long for heaven. Man. You know, like God's given us a good life here in Adelaide. We have our struggles. We have our good times. We have our bad times. But ultimately, no one wants to die, do they? We don't want to die. We have a natural inclination in ourselves to want to live. Amen? We want to live. No matter how bad it gets, you're still not going to put your hand up and say, kill me, usually, unless you have those suicidal tendencies. Most of the most normal, balanced humans want to live by their very nature, despite circumstances, a lot of the time. Heaven is going to be a place where you can live and you will never cry again, you will never suffer again, 
you'll never experience pain again. It will be the, what, the place that was intended to be like the Garden of Eden, paradise, a place you will never, ever want to leave. And it's going to get, they reckon we're going to go from glory to glory to glory, greater glories. And just when you think heaven is the best it can ever get, it's going to get better than that. And then you're going to be living that way for a thousand years and you're saying, Lord, thank you, this is the best it could possibly ever get. The Lord will say, really? Watch this. Bang! And you're living in a greater capacity and you're just thinking, I didn't know you could live better than that. And then after a billion years, he's gonna, you're going to be saying, Lord, this is so good. It's so much better than any other point in heaven. And he's going to say, really? Watch this. Bang. And he's going to make it even better. We're going to go from glory to glory to glory to glory. And, and all that comes in because if you, if, imagine if you died and you went to heaven and he put you in the extreme state of glory straight away, you'd probably explode. So he's, he builds you up, <laughs> prepares you. For greater glories. You know, so we're growing in heaven, we're developing in heaven, we will be busy in heaven. Don't think you're going there to have a bludge. You're gonna be busy. But the work is gonna be so satisfying. You know how when you work now, you look at the clock, oh it's two o'clock, I've got you know three hours to go or whatever. You know, in heaven, it's gonna be like, oh, I just never want this at work to end. And it won't, it'll keep on coming. But it's a work I can't explain right now because I don't know about it. I haven't got any description, but I know we will work in heaven. What he is saying is that life eternal is not worth desiring. Christopher Hitchens is trying to get into the minds of atheists that eternal life shouldn't be desired. You don't want it. So believers and atheists, and when you die, that's the end. There's no more. He prefers that altogether. But we know from Scripture that's not the case. And who, whose word are you going to take for it? Uh, for, for gospel, Christopher Hitchens or the Bible. And to me, the Bible wins out every time. There's so much more authority in the Bible than there is in Christopher Hitchens' words, especially when he's got such a hopeless outlook on life. Who would want to believe that for a start? Who would want to, you know, accept that into their spirit and live that way and think that way and be that way? What a hopeless state. It's despair. It is sheer despair. And there are a lot of people out there despairing of life. Suicide rates are increasing worldwide. Increasing, on the increase. Alarming statistics there. I will get some statistics and I want to put them up just to show you the differences over the decades and how much it's increasing. And that's because of this sort of teaching. This sort of teaching promotes death. It promotes it. Makes people want to give up. Okay, but let's, let's look to the truth now, shall we? So what is the meaning? I'm just going to run through a few things. Solomon, he was the richest man in history. He had what every you know, worldly man would dream of. He had great wisdom, he had power, he had fame, he had fortune beyond measure. He, just, he had so much money coming in, it wasn't funny. Actually, it was 666 talents of gold a year. That's interesting. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a lot of wives. A lot of concubines. Now, we won't go there, but you can imagine how many men would love to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. I wouldn't. One's enough. I quickly added that. Got to slip that in quick. Just in case. She takes me wrong. <laughs> All right, but... 
700 wives, 300 concubines. That's a lot of women. Anyway, and he exclaimed at the end, he said this, he said, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. So what he's saying is all of that, everything that he had, great wisdom. This is a man of great wisdom. So Jesus had to be more than just great wisdom or else it would be just meaningless if it was just wisdom. There's more to Jesus than this. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. A combination of essences which uh, give meaning beyond measure, but just wisdom on its own, just great intellect, great intellectual capacity on its own is not enough. Fame is not enough. We know that from celebrities around the world. They get all the fame in the world and they're depressed. They can't stand themselves. They take heroin and drugs to try to, you know, get, uh, get their minds out of that rut that they're in all the time, they're living in. And that's how they get by in life. But he said meaningless. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14 says this, Now all has been heard. This is Solomon saying this. Here is the conclusion of the matter. And quite a few of us who read the Bible will know this. Fear God and keep his commandments. The conclusion of the matter after everything has been looked at and summarized, what is the meaning of life? This is Solomon's version. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. Do his will. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So he put a bit of, he he wrote that so we can get a sense of the fear of God. We will be judged. We will be judged. None of us here, if we believe in Jesus and hold to Jesus as Lord and Saviour, none of us here will lose our salvation. But the saints will be judged according to their deeds. It's the unbelievers that will be judged according to their salvation. And no man can enter the kingdom of God except through Jesus Christ. So, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing. Now, that's scary. It's not just the things we all know about. It's the things we don't all know about. The private things. So we've got to clean up our private lives. When we're sitting alone in the bedroom, guys, we're not alone. I've got to keep telling myself that all the time. We are watched. He watches over the sons of men. He watches over. So clean up your act in every area, especially our private lives. And you know what? You clean up your private life, your outward life that everyone sees will also naturally clean up. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we find that God created mankind in his image. So this means that we are more like God than we are like anything else, any other life form. We are more like God. When someone looks at me, they're looking at an image of God. When I'm looking at you guys, I know what God looks like. Sort of like you guys. Sort of. You know what I mean? We all look different. None of us look the same. God doesn't look the same as any of us in the facial expressions and body shape and everything else. I could imagine just how he looks. He'd be the most awesome, you know, existence we're ever going to see. But there's meaning alone. Guys, you're created in his image. That's an incredible thing to know. We have, we are honoured to be in this image. Just thank God every day. Thank you, Lord, that I wasn't born a dog. Or I wasn't born a cat or born a cow or something. If I was born a cow, I'd like to be in India, where they worship me. (laughs) No, 
if we, we are created in the image of God. Now, that gives meaning to our life. Amen? He also, understand this, Ecclesiastes 3.11, he also set eternity in the hearts of men. Guys, we know, in our heart of hearts, we know we're eternal. We know life is more than just what we have now. We know that when we die, we know we're going to go somewhere. I, I would dare say that there wouldn't be a soul who's slipped slowly into death or who knows consciously they're about to die. There wouldn't be a soul on earth who's never started to go, well, I'm leaving now. Um, do I keep living now? Am I going to continue on? Or is this really the end? They're going to start questioning that. They might be strong in their convictions now while they're living and they're healthy and there's nothing wrong. But the moment they enter into that death realm, the moment they slip over that, you know, whatever it is, precipice that you, the threshold, the curtain or the veil or whatever, you go in. As you're doing that, if you're consciously aware at that time, there wouldn't be a soul on earth that wouldn't go, what's going to happen now? Where am I going? Is there eternity? But I dare say that most people, even way before that, will start thinking it. Actually, I, I reckon nearly every single person on earth would have considered that. Are we really eternal creatures or is this it? Yeah? So we've got to remember that. And the reason we consider that is because God has set eternity into, the, into our hearts. Okay, Revelation 4.11. Now, this is the one I really wanted to get to. Revelation 4.11, it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for Thou hast created all things, and this is the key. This is the meaning of life. And for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So why? What is the meaning of life? To bring the Lord pleasure. That's it. That's it. Seems pretty simple. It was a revelation in the book of Revelation. So we were created for the Lord's pleasure. We should let this revelation from the book of Revelation, and it's, it's appropriate that that revelation came in the book of Revelation, isn't it? I think. Let it resonate in your hearts and minds until it takes a deep root in your consciousness and changes who you are and what you do. Let that re revelation really enter your heart. You were created to bring the Lord pleasure. You were not created to continuously bring yourself pleasure. Because usually if you're bringing yourself pleasure continually, you would be not bringing the Lord pleasure. Because what you're doing is you're focusing on self and not focusing on God. So as a Christian, you were created to be doing things that the Lord looks down upon and smiles upon and is happy about. And one day we'll pat you on the back and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. You know, keep that in mind because it's really important that we understand the gravity of that. Now, if you really grasp it, that you were created and the reason you were created was for his pleasure, it's going to radically change everything you do. When you get home and you're thinking about, you know, turning on the TV, you'll go, no, what about if I read the Bible instead? Or what about if I pray right now instead of ringing my friend just to have a gas bag? You know what I mean? What about if I, you know, uh, go and put on a worship CD and worship the Lord right now? 
What about how can I make my Lord uh, happy with me? What can I do to make him happy right now? And every moment of your day, if you can think about that, how can I make him happy? So when you're at work, how can I make him happy? And the Lord will say, well, do your work well. Don't bludge. You know, get stuck into your work. Become the best employee in that firm. You know, think, how can I bring him pleasure? And all these things bring the Lord great pleasure. Amen? There is no better authority upon the meaning of life than the one who created us and knit us together in the mother's womb, is there? He's the authority. There's a, a, a story of Aunt Matilda's cake. Do you remember that in the John Lennox book? Aunt Matilda baked the cake, and no one knew what the reason was for the cake being made. So they took the cake to scientists, and different scientists looked at it, and they analysed it, and cut pieces out, and they said, well, it's made up of this and that and the other. And, and they're trying to come to a conclusion of why the cake was made. But none of the scientists could tell anyone why the cake was made, so they decided, what about if we ask Aunt Matilda? They asked her, and she said, I made it for my nephew. His birthday's tomorrow. And then it made sense. So the problem today is we've been created, we've been made just like Aunt Matilda's cake. And all these atheists are trying to work out the meaning to life and coming to pretty well zero conclusions, you know, that life's not even worth asking that question because they can't answer it unless you ask the one who created us. You've got to go to the, the one who made us, the source, the authority. Amen? Ephesians 1, 11 to 12, it says, In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now, I won't go too much into the rest of that because I've, I've covered that in my Ephesians study. You can check that out online. But we who were the first to hope in Christ, or we who are hoping in Christ now, you could say, are for the praise of his glory. Paul tells us pretty straight in Ephesians that we are for the praise of his glory. Not only were we created for his pleasure, but our life gets filled with even deeper meaning when we live to see that our lives bring him praise and glory. So what, what would that mean? It would mean telling people about Jesus, lifting up his name at and I'll add and stress at the right time. Pick your times when you talk to people about Jesus. Don't go out and start talking to your mates when they're drunk or something at the bar. You know, it's not the right time. Their headspace is not in the right place. You know what I mean? Pick your times. Find those moments, those opportune moments, and be wise. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for, here it is again, who I created for my glory, created for my glory, whom I am formed and I made. Now, just a, a little bit of a deeper meaning. We're nearly finished, guys. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So you want meaning? God's giving you meaning here. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Would you consider yourselves priests? Would you, in your heart of hearts, like when you really think about yourself, do you think of yourself as a priest of God? What is, how does God think of you, though? God thinks of you guys as priests and priestesses for God. His people uh, that would chosen a chosen person, selected to be a priest or a priestess. Now, if you don't have that mindset, I think you've got to go deeper. 
You know, I, I started to consider that before I became a minister of the gospel. I started to consider that verse and think, okay, Lord, is that what you've called me to be? Not that every priest of God has to be doing exactly what I'm doing, you know what I mean? But it was a catalyst. It changed the way I think about myself because I started to think of myself through God's eyes, not through my own perception of myself. Because in myself, you know, I was not capable or able to do anything for God. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do all things, amen? Through Jesus Christ, who strengthens us. So a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that you may declare, this is what we're to do, you're to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So now we are told uh, who and what we are in the eyes of God. As the one who created us, his intention for us is to be his chosen people. So we're handpicked. So thank God. Thank God every day. Thank you, Lord, for choosing me. Thank you for putting it in my heart to be a Christian. We're chosen. Well, his royal priesthood, we're in his service. So start to change that perception of yourself. You're a priest now. And it's not like you one day will become a priest and something and end up in a Catholic church somewhere or something. That's not what we're talking about. God's idea of a priest is very different to man's idea. A priest is someone who declares his praises and who reaches people, who does the Great Commission. You know, in relation to the Great Commission, who, who understands what the Great Commission is? In a word, it's to make disciples of nations. Did they call the Great Commission the Great Option? You can do it or you might do it or maybe not. If I get the time, I'll do it. Was it called the Great Option? Or is it called the Great Commission? We are commissioned. We are called to reach people for Jesus. We are called to do that. And one day, because it's a commission, when we stand before God, one of the things he's going to say is he's going to say to us, what did you do with my Great Commission? What did you do with it? And if you end up like going, you know, I can't find the words. If you can't find the words to answer God, which I'll tell you, if he says that, you won't have the words to answer. You're just going to say, I'm sorry, Lord. I lived a whole life down there. My pastor preached about it often. I ignored it. I considered it an option. I didn't consider it a commission. You know, we've got to consider these things. Because this is all about the meaning of life. This is our meaning. This is our meaning. This is what we were created for. You're not created to sit in front of a computer and, and listen to music, worldly music, and to watch movies and to just party and to live life, you know, like the rest of the world. This is not the reason. If it was, what a hopeless existence, you'd have to admit, that is. And how many of these atheists and these, you know, spiritual gurus admit they got no idea because they realize it's a futile existence if you don't have God. It's a futile existence if Jesus isn't in your heart. Amen? Who gets it? A chosen people, a royal priesthood in his service, his holy people who are holy before him. Keep that in mind, a holy people. That means we've got to not just be holy when we're in public, we've got to be holy in private. Because God is watching every last thing that we do. Clean up your act in private, like I said before, because we're called and the reason we were created was to be holy, as he is holy. We belong not to ourselves but to God to do his will. So now 
the Lord saying, it's, it's my will, not your will. We have free will, amen? We can continue, and you know, most of us do, we continue doing our own will. Regardless of listening to this sermon, I dare say that a good portion of us here will go and continue to do our own will, even though I'm telling you, the Lord has called us to do his will and to seek his will and to live according to his will. And we are to declare his praises. We're to give praise to God where praise is due. Someone is healed of cancer, praise God. And people look at you like, what are you talking about, buddy? I'm thanking God, man. I don't care what you think. I'm going to give praises to where praise, for where praise is due, and it's due right now. And I know why that person got better. And they'll say, oh, the doctors did. And I'll say, yes, the doctors helped the process. God blessed them with the gift and the talent to do what they do. But if we don't honour the one who really is the one that's doing it all, and when I say that, I say in the sense of anything that is happening that is good is God's direct influence. Anything that is happening that is evil is Satan's direct influence. Or it's just our weaknesses and we're, we're not trying to control them. That's a whole other sermon. Anyway, I won't go there now. There's a lot in that. So the last screen, so you all know we're nearly there. John 14, 6, and this is the meaning, ultimate meaning of life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus in this statement is making very clear that he in himself is the meaning of life. Jesus is the meaning of life. For he purchased all those who come to him by his precious blood. It was his blood that saved us. Amen? Who's heard that a million times now as a Christian? Hear it often over every communion message. It's his blood, it's his blood, it's his blood. But his blood bought us. That blood was spilt from a man of, who was God in man and it was spilt with the most, in the most extreme instances. Like you can't get more extreme circumstances than what happened to Jesus because no other man has ever died in those circumstances that he died carrying the spiritual weight of human sin. Now, I want to I just take you into that for a second. Just say... For example, you get a notorious killer, one of the worst killers that's ever existed, right? And you travel through time and watch that man live his daily life and you see the terrible things that that man does on a daily basis, right? And say for 20 years he was just doing a terrible crime every day or, or multiple crimes per day. Would that be hard to watch? For you, for any one of us, could you go through time watching a terrible, notorious killer go through his daily life doing terrible things every day? Would that be hard to watch? Well, Jesus Christ carried the weight of all of humanity and all of their compiled sin, all of that sin amassed on Jesus. Not of just that one terrible man, but on Billions and of billions of men and women. And all the terrible things they did were lumped on top of Jesus. And Jesus carried it. And he was on the cross. And not only was that going on in him spiritually, of course he was getting impaled on a cross. Nails. And he was getting whipped before that. He was getting whipped and beaten and clubbed over the head. And he, he was a mess. They, the book of Isaiah says that he was so disfigured, you couldn't even tell that he was a man. 
He was beaten that hard you could not recognise him. His face was probably a swollen mass, looking more like something like the elephant man than a man. And he took that and he took the weight of human sin on him and then the worst thing of all, because to complete it, God had to turn away because he couldn't look at sin. And Jesus goes, well, you as well. And he died. Lord, I commit my spirit. And he died. Some people see that as foolish. I've heard Dawkins say it's, it's foolish. You know? That's a pathetic thing. I think it's the most wonderful thing that's ever taken place in the universe. Amen? He took it for us. But to me, that's the meaning of life. If my Lord was willing to take that on the cross for me, then I'm willing to lay my life down for him. Amen? In return. Who gets me today? Yeah? Lay your life down in return. Give it back to him. Say, Lord, you did that for me. You took all of that from me. I'm going to give you me now. <laughs> you have me. And that's why we're called to give him our lives. Colossians 1.21, once you are alienated from God. You are enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. Because we behaved so badly, we were enemies of God. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death He's reconciled you to the Father, meaning he's brought you back into relationship. Reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. See, we've got to be presented holy. That that's not, it doesn't take place, place vicariously, meaning we don't have any control of that. We must act in that and become holy to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue, and I underline that word if, even though you can't see the underline very well. If is conditional. Whenever you see an if in the Bible, always stop and take note of what is getting said after the if. And I think I said this last week. I may have. But if you continue in your faith, this is how he will receive you to himself. If you continue in your faith, establish and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Don't be moved. Don't let any man move you from the hope held out in the gospel. And I'll say this. Even if someone says something to you that gives you a little bit of doubt, have the steadfastness and the immovableness in Christ to go, okay, even though he might have put a little bit of doubt in me at the moment, I'm not going to just fall away from the faith like a weakling. I'm going to give time to God now to... Give me the full answer to this. And you know what? God always gives you the answers. He always explains things. You know? So keep that in mind. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Isn't that a wonderful verse? All right, so let's pray and then we're, we're uh, going to conclude the meeting. So. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this uh, message, and I pray that the message has uh, reached into our hearts, Lord, and, and touched us and moved us to, um, uh, to just change our attitude towards you, Lord, if we need that attitude changed, of course. But we can all do with sharpening up our, our spiritual lives, sharpening up our Christian walk, living more powerfully and uh, uh, with more um, de determined 
to be the kind of people that you created us to be. So Lord, I just pray that you will uh, bless all of us in this. Help us to ponder it more, not just to walk out of here and forget everything, let it drop out of our heads or anything like that. But Lord, help it to help us to ponder it and uh, chew over this and let it sort of permeate in our hearts so that we can uh, become stronger Christians as a result of this message. And uh, I pray that it will uh, also reach uh, far and wide around the world and touch many hearts and have an effect for years to come also. Uh, and so, Lord, I just pray your blessing over us this week. Cover us in your precious blood. Put your angels around us and protect us. Continue, continually be with us and guide us by your will and by the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you search Rob Cartledge in the iTunes store or go to www.robcartledge.com, you'll see a number of different sermon series. Uncovering Religion, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, Apologetics 101, Critical Doctrine and End Times. Feel free to check them out.